Greetings, everyone. This will be the second to last podcast I'll do for the semester, and I'll do one more AMA, and then we'll kind of wrap up everything in terms of lectures and everything as far as all that's concerned. You know, this class is designed to end a little bit earlier than usual, but if you want to submit your final research position paper, you can do that on the very last day of finals, which is May 12th. So you'll have until that day to get everything turned in. I will double check that date just to make sure that doesn't push us beyond any extension or submission problem with the university. But that's the absolute latest I could accept it. And I would have to get it by about 8 a.m. on that day in order to be able to fully read everyone's papers and grade them and submit your grades for the final registration. But... That's kind of thinking ahead. So once you're kind of wrapping your head around how you're going to wrap up this semester, that's a good way to think about it. There's going to be one more AMA, one more podcast, but really all you're doing right now is finishing up this last project, which is your research position paper. Now your research position paper is a sign in your textbook and it starts on page LXX. And if you are using a some other t textbook, you really need to get a hold of this version. And if not, if you don't have it or if there's some problem, I know there's been some problems before, please let me know soon so that we can move forward with the right information. Now, one last thing before I begin reading through the assignment and answering some of the questions that many of you are having. Uh, this has been a tr uh, kind of tricky semester for me, especially. So I appreciate all the well wishes from everyone. I certainly appreciate all of your patience and understanding with everything, kind of getting things back into motion, but it was a little slower than I thought. And then, of course, Canvas had these few changes. And I don't know if it was, I don't know why they made these changes in the middle of the semester with some of their stuff. Some of it was made earlier, and I didn't wasn't aware of it when I started grading and doing some elements. So, you know, I don't blame them for needing to update certain things. But when I contacted this tech support, they said, you know, there's just nothing we can do the way we have changed Canvas won't allow you to go back and do things the way you had originally planned to do them. And they're very apologetic. I was, of course, angry and annoyed, but there's no point in getting into a fight there. So I've made some changes to the way I'm going to grade and update things, and I put all that in this week's lecture, so just check that out. And one more last thing before I read through the assignment. Your research position paper assignment uh, also requires you to do a presentation. So we're going to be doing that through this discussion board. In fact, if you go to the discussions, you'll see one called RPP Presentations. Some of you have already submitted your presentations, and that's great. I just want to point out a few things for you in your presentations. Many of the examples we already see are really good. They have some great imagery, so that we're getting some bonus points there for that. And if you do that, once again, I've said there's almost... Uh, no, almost no end. I wouldn't say there's no end, but there's almost no end to these bonuses. Adding imagery that is relevant to your presentation will help you earn points. Another way you can earn points is explaining elements. Some of the reasons, for instance, if you look at Subin's uh, submission that's already available there, the reasons listed there, one, two, and three, also have a lot of detail associated with those. So that's another way to kind of earn bonus points. You could say one of the reasons, if you look at reason number one in Subin's submission, you'll see that 
the first reason says this is an ethical matter. So that's a good reason to support the claim. But there's more detail kind of explaining that reason, and that's great. So it anticipates some questions that we have, gives the presentation a little bit more detail, and so adding some more bonus points there. One thing I would also say is that some of the imagery that is being used is a really cool photo of, if you look at the very first one that Zachary did, this really cool patriotic kind of flag, but it's on fire, you know, or, what, you know, or there's a fire there. I don't, I want to, don't want to say Zach is uh, burning a flag there, but uh, th there is this, uh, there's a really cool imagery to, to, per to show that, demonstrate that. If you do do an image or use an image, one way to improve the bonus points you'll get is to maybe even add a caption or a, something else that gives some detail to the relevance of the image that you used. I mean, any little feature that you can add to really make the presentation more enhanced will add those bonus points. But you will get a 100 if you just say title and then list your title, main claim, list your main claim, and then reasons, and then list your three or more reasons that you are using in your research position paper. So that's really all you need to do for this presentation to get a 100. And so far, the presentations I see are already on track to earn more points. Now, one thing I will point out is if it's difficult for us to identify what your claim is and what your reasons are in the presentation, that can be a problem and you may not get full points there. So make sure, those of you who've already presented your presentation, if it's not clear, just go ahead and go back in and label them. Make a quick change to what you already have. And even if it's just a matter of grabbing a Sharpie and draw, you know, drawing a circle around and pointing to it there, that's fine too. So make sure you're labeling elements. You know, like Subin has, here are my reasons. And so there are three very clear reasons there. Here's my audience. And so something to point out there. You can change your presentation any time before the final paper was originally scheduled, which is May 4th. So if you do realize, oh, you know what, I submitted it, but I didn't clarify this, or I'd like to make a change here, that's fine. Now, I know that means that some of you will miss those present, those, um, those uh, new submissions. What you'll need to do if you, if you are, look, if I'm looking at, I'm, what, the way I'm grading your presentations is I'm looking to see how you have viewed all of the presentations. And so the, the way that works is uh, the discussion board tells me that you viewed them. I'm going to trust that you've read them and, and looked them looked at them and, and maybe met, made a comment or something. But the discussion board would tell me. So you going in and clicking on a document or an item tells me that you viewed it. So if you viewed them all, then that's great. If it says you're missing one or two at the end because there are a few people who redid their presentation, or maybe you're missing 10 or 20, I don't, you know, however many people redo it, I will just double check to make sure that the ones that you missed are resubmissions. But one thing that's really cool that some of you have already been saying here is that I have read all current submissions and will read more as they pop up. That's great. Keep saying that. Let me know. That's a, that's a great reminder that you are getting back in to the uh, discussion board and having that a communication with me, but also viewing all of your all of your classmates' presentations. That's one last element to get that 100 is making sure you view them all. And I'm only going to judge that by how the canvas tells me whether or not you viewed them. Okay, 
So that's it for the presentation. And if you have further questions about that, uh, feel free to email me or um, wait for the AMA. We'll, we'll uh, deal with that uh, a little bit uh, later. But I would recommend you get your presentation out of the way. Right now, you're working on this first draft of this RPP. Now, I know the first draft is due on Monday, and some of you are like, I cannot get this done by Monday. I would recommend you do everything you can to get something turned in by Monday. And even if it's an outline of what you're going to do with your paper, that's fine. What your partner can do is read that as a, you know, kind of poorly constructed essay, you know, in a sense, and give you some feedback on how you might go about accomplishing some of the goals for the assignment. So that we'll do our our peer reviews next week for the first drafts, kind of looking at those. And since we have this extended due date, if some of you and you and your partner decide, hey, let's call dibs on one another's papers, but wait a little bit and resubmit them, you can work out a deal there. Just let me know what you're going to do as far as that deal is concerned. And I'll that's fine if you guys want to push your your peer review a little bit later past. It's not due until, let's see, what's the day? The 16th. So it won't be due until a week after this coming Monday. So you'll be good as far as time. But if you need a little bit more time, just kind of work that out with your partner. And then uh, let me know what's going on there. Okay. But that that's all for next week. All right. Your research position paper. Whew. We are finally at the end of the semester. I know you guys have done a lot. You've been writing a lot. You've been researching these topics. Your work has looked great. All of you have chosen these really cool issues. Some of them are big national issues. Some of them are, you know, smaller, more local kinds of issues. Some of them are based on entertainment. Some of them are based on politics. Some of them are based on environmental science. Some of them are based, based on personal preferences and everything. And so there's a lot of options out there. And when you start looking at the presentations, you'll get to see all the different things that people are doing. It's really cool. So I'm going to just now read through the assignment and answer a few questions that I usually anticipate from students that you might have. And then next week with the AMA or through email or whatever, if you have questions as they come up, just let me know and I will answer them. Okay. So the research position paper on page LXX begins with the rhetorical situation as usual. And this is what it says. For your issue proposal, you organize your pre-existing knowledge on your issue and sketched a plan for research. You then compiled several sources and summarized their contents for your annotated bibliography. In your mapping the issue paper, you trace the controversy surrounding your issue by describing its history and summarizing the major positions on it. All these assignments have been preparing you for this final paper where you will advocate a position on your issue with a well-supported argument written for an audience that you select. Now we're going to talk more about this audience a little bit later, but it's an important thing to keep in mind. But notice the main goal of this assignment is that you will advocate a position on your issue. So you're finally saying, this is my position and I am the advocate for it. Notice it doesn't say you're going to make X kind of argument. 
but it says advocate for a position. Many of you are going to have different types of claims, and there's just going to be different arguments you're going to make. Some of you will be making claims of fact, like we should accept this as true. Some of you are going to be making claims of value. For instance, this is good or bad or right or wrong. Some of you are going to be taking uh, positions that are claims of definition, where you're going to be saying, this is how we should define something or really interpret it. And this is my reasoning behind that. It's a really kind of uh, way in which you're looking at the intricacies of the controversy, maybe, or an element of a controversy. But many of you also, and this may be the most common one, this usually is, but it's not a requirement, will be making the claim, a proposal claim. A proposal claim is, just like any other type of claim, it is a statement that you'll have to support with reasons. It's an advocacy for whatever position you're taking, but it specifically requests a kind of plan of action. This is what we should do. It's the kind of claim I'm making in my argument. Part of my claim is, or really my main claim, is to ask evangelical leaders through this very particular publication to kind of pull back, really stop. I, I, I put it in pretty strict terms. Their advocacy for um, their anti-abortion rhetoric. And I don't put it quite that way because I don't, I really shy away from the term anti-abortion because that is a term that pro-life advocates don't appreciate. And so I don't use that because I'm writing to a pro-life advocate. Now, some of you are going to be writing to people who are adamantly against you like I am. But some of you are not. You're going to be writing about pe- writing to people or organizations or groups or whatever that maybe kind of on your side in some ways but are mainly against you. Some of you, well, they're totally on your side except for this one point and this one reasoning. I, you know, I once had wrote an argument to someone who was on my side and we were advocating for the exact same thing to happen. But one of our reasons for advocating was very different. And so I, my whole argument against them was about why their reason was a bad reason to use and why my reason was superior. You know, looking back, and this is the great thing about argumentation, after we've had, and this is something, it, it was about some building or something that we were, we were constructing with this organization I belong to. And, you know, looking back and after years of, of having the conversation, I feel like I was completely wrong. Not completely. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll change that a little bit. I feel like I wasn't as right as I thought I was about that. And so we've had some really good conversations, a really good friend of mine, for years after we've had this kind of debate back and forth about this uh, one particular issue. It was just simply about a reason we disagreed on why it shouldn't be a reason. And so there are a lot of different ways you're going to approach this, but rem- keep all of that in mind. But mainly keep in mind, whatever kind of argument you're making, you're advocating a position, whatever it may be, whatever type it may be, within your issue. Now, remember your issue, this big controversial question that is unanswered and that you're you're now providing your answer to that issue. Okay, so continuing on with the assignment, invention. 
And as we know, invention is one of the things we do for every writing assignment we have. I'm not going to read through the main introduction there because we all remember that about invention. But if not, you can get a refresher from the text. But, but under number one, the first invention step says this. You should first choose a publication venue for your paper. For example, will you write a letter directly to an individual, group, or organization? Or will you write an article for a newspaper, newsletter, or periodical? Perhaps a piece for a website, web-based publication, or social media site. To ensure that you select a specific enough audience, make sure your venue has an address, physical or electronic, to which you can send your paper. Then investigate the characteristics and values of the readers you will reach through this venue. Now, this is really important. You cannot choose a broad, abstract audience. And I know some of you have already done this, but you can't choose an audience like UTA or American people or women of the world or anything like that. Because you can't send an app, you can't, those do not have a physical or electronic address. So it does need to be really specified. Now, in your issue proposal, and in your mapping the issue paper, you identified several different stakeholders who would be involved in this. So you know who you agree with and disagree with on this topic and who exactly you want to send this to or who would be a good recipient of this. Now, many of you may be looking for recipients outside of the, the main controversy. That's kind of where I am, actually. And it's, it's an interesting situation, but let me tell you how I go about this. I decided to write my paper for um, Christianity Today. And if you've never read that uh, publication, you should. It's a really interesting one, especially if you want to get a sense of what evangelical Christian culture is like in America. It, it really gives you the best insight into that kind of cultural, ethnic uh, background. And um, anyways, uh, it's a good publication, too. It's a very well written and and. and done very well and lots of good research and many great commentaries in that publication. Now, the, I, if you've ever read the publication, you know they do not publish 10-page research papers. So how am I going to do this? Well, this is what I have to do, and this is what you will have to do depending on who you're writing for. First of all, I look up the publication's standards for submission. And many of you are like, well, how do you do that? Well, a lot of websites or magazines or whatever have that information available. But if you don't have it, let's say you're writing to an individual, well, just find out how you would normally communicate with that individual or an organization. Now, the way it works for me is I can go into our database library and I can, one, one thing that may make this easier is you can ask a librarian. Sometimes they'll just give you the answer right away. How do I submit a paper to Christianity Today, for instance, and they'll send you the information. Now, I've done that. But mine's a little different because they don't publish 10-page papers. So I decided then, after I learned all the publication stuff, that I would directly communicate with the editor and ask them, if I wanted to submit a paper that could be divided up into like maybe a series of statements on this particular topic, how would I do that? In fact, it wasn't like the senior editor. It was one of the uh, junior editors there. And they said, oh, that's interesting. We've actually done that before. This is what it would look like. And so they said, they sent me the information for what a proposal would look like for the serial. 
and then they one of the weird things about that is you don't provide the entire series yet you just provide samples and so i said well what if i had the entire series ready and we could just edit it from there and they're like oh that's even better and so they show me they talked to me about how i would do that so this was kind of a long process for me to find my audience but i did so i'm writing this essay as if it is part of that proposal for the publication where I'm walking through the kind of serial kind of uh, we're walking through the different feet. Uh, sorry, I guess I should say different publications that would be in the serial um, issue where I would talk about this particular topic and it would be divided up. They said really with a 10 page paper, it would probably be divided up into at least five series or five uh, publications, maybe more depending on how it works, because their publications on their website and in their magazine are usually pretty short. They rarely ever do these big, long things. But the junior editors did say, you know, we may be due for a new kind of expression on this topic that you've chosen, because it's such a, a, a big issue right now with our culture, as far as politics and the, you know, legal circumstances and the justices and the Supreme Court and everything are concerned. So we may need to revisit it. Anyway, all that to say is, I finally figured out how it would work and who I'm going to be sending this to. Now, in, my, in a presentation, I would just say, the uh, audience is the editor of Christianity Today. But in reality is, the only reason I know that is because of all the work I've done. So I may want to, in my presentation, add a few notes about how I figured out I was writing to that editor and how I would be writing to that editor. That really gives some insight on what's going on there with that publication. But in most publications, you can go to the database, our, our, our database for, through the UTA library, and virtually every publication, with a few exceptions, will have some standards for how they want to you to submit papers to their publication. And anytime you do that, if you follow their publication standards really well and really closely, they're more than happy to review your paper and go through all the steps to, to tell you whether or not they'll accept it or not. I do this a lot. And when I first started publishing <laughs> in magazines or journals or whatever, I didn't do this very much, and I got a lot of rejections from a lot of people that, you know, from, from the start, you know, right out the, right at the beginning, and they would say, well, uh, you know, you didn't follow our guidelines, so go back and resubmit it, and so you go back through all that process. Anyways, so they have guidelines for that, but if they don't have guidelines, let's say, or they're not, a, it's, you're not reply, you're not publishing to a journal or anything with an ISSN or anything like that. And that ISSN is just the, the like publication number, like an ISBN or whatever for uh, journals. If you're, if you're not writing to someone like that, look on their webpage. How do you go through the contact process? And how do you work through? How, do you, how would you submit 10 pages of research to whoever or whatever you're submitting it to? Now, you don't have to eventually submit this to them. But the paper does have to be written so that it could be, potentially. And so that's what that's one of the kind of parts of this paper that require a little extra work on your part. 
Now, I'm not going to scrutinize this when I'm grading your paper. So I'm going to trust that you've done this work. And if you haven't, then you at least know that this is kind of what you really need to do if you do want to submit something like a research paper somewhere. There's this, there's these stages where you have to go through this work. And that's kind of how academic writing, you know, the process of academic writing in general works is you have to figure out how you submit your publication and whether or not your publication will even work. And if it doesn't, you know, ask questions about how could it work like I did with Christianity Today. And so they kind of walk you through that. Most publishers and most of these organizations are pretty happy to help you. And librarians are too. Oh my gosh. We have some of the best librarians at UTA and they are really excited about helping you. In fact, they like getting questions from students and even professors who say, hey, I'm trying to figure out this publication information. Could you help me out? And they will gladly do that for you. So make sure your audience is specific and could potentially actually physically receive that publication or that uh, research paper, which means it has to be a specific audience, not a general audience that you are kind of formulating, even though that is often how we write in other kinds of writing situations. But one thing you'll notice, and this is important to keep in mind, in 13, English 1301 and even in English 1302, we have pretty much always said this is your specific audience when you're writing. The reason we've done that is because we, generally speaking, have a pretty good sense of who we're writing for. I mean, even if you think of like a really big publication, like the New York Times, and those opinion writers for the New York Times, they actually know who they're writing for. They're writing for New York Times subscribers. So they know that audience, it's a specific audience, and they have an address that they will receive it. Now, I know you're thinking, well, that's very general. Yeah, that's fine too. You can write your paper to an audience that subscribes to a magazine. So you could say, I'm writing this as if this is how it's working. This, this is who's reading it or who would potentially read it. So you could write the research paper as if you are a staff writer for, you know, whatever magazine or journal or whatever you're writing for. That's fine too. You're just finding your audience and making sure you're doing it and writing the paper in the way that works for them. Now, that says another thing about formatting as well. Format your paper using MLA or whichever format that publication or the individual will request of you. Now, this may be complicated for some people and easier for others. For instance, if you're writing to an individual person, they don't have a whole lot of requirements usually for the kinds of things that they would read and accept. Now, some of them are going to ask you to cite your sources. In fact, I don't know anyone who would want a research paper that doesn't have sources cited. That's pretty much an expectation for anyone reading anything. But, you know, an individual can do fine with URL links within a paper rather than a full bibliographic page. Whereas if you're writing to, let's say, a scientist who is 
working within academic stand within academic parameters, I guess you should say, like a, at a university or somewhere along those or in some research institution, they are going to expect you to have the pretty standard, you know, MLA or APA or whatever format you're going to be using there. So they're going to be, be expecting that. So you're going to have to have that audience in mind and write your paper for them specifically. Okay, so moving on with invention. Number two, once you've settled on an audience, construct a claim that advances the conversation about your issue and turns it in a new direction. So remember, you're answering that question, so that's why it says turning it in a new direction. You don't have to have this 100% completely new thing that, you know, it's not like you're inventing the wheel or anything, but for the first time, I guess, but you are going to demonstrate that this is something that you have developed on your own. This is kind of your own, well, it's your advocacy. How do you advocate for something? And we're all going to do this differently, not just stylistically, but even kind of the way we think of things. This is kind of the interesting thing about all of the topics many of you have chosen. I mean, I know that I have a really strong position on mine, but I've been actually working with this lawyer on this project who is also concerned about this. Now, this lawyer is very different from me because she is thinking about things from a legal standpoint, but she's also a really devout evangelical Christian, and I am not. And so we're both, we both come from the similar backgrounds as far as being immersed in that community. But she is on my side, but for very different reasons. And so we have a lot of interesting conversations about that. But she also looks at a lot of legal stuff. And so that's part of her advocacy is to think of it in legal terms alongside the religious, theological, and sociological terms. I'm mainly just looking at it in terms of the cultural phenomenon and my own personal ethnic background that is associated with this community. So that's something to keep in mind. That's kind of the new direction I'm taking it is kind of just a representation of my own personal advocacy and the way I look at it. And I remind the reader of that a lot. So that's something to keep in mind. But continuing on with number two. You might disagree with the claim made by an author. So check out those pages and they say, I say. You might agree and disagree with the claim simultaneously. So kind of what I was explaining with me and that uh, lawyer I'm working with. Or you might generate an entirely new claim that addresses an aspect of the issue that has not been addressed in the sources you found. And of course, that's where you're going with a completely transformed position. Number three, next, attach as many reasons as are necessary to fully support your claim. Your claim plus reasons, as you know, also known as enthememes, will form your thesis. Now, an enthememe is basically, it's it's an old term that Aristotle kind of invents, and it refers to a suppressed premise. So if you think of how things are expressed a lot in logical terms with like a syllogism, where you say all men are immortal, Socrates is a man, therefore the necessary conclusion is that Socrates is mortal, okay, because he fits into that category. So this is a categorical syllogism. We're looking at all these different categories, mortal, man, 
Socrates, and the way we've made those statements, Socrates fits into the category of mortal. Now, if I were to say Socrates is mortal because he is a man, I've given you my claim, Socrates is mortal. I've given you my reason, he's a man. So what is missing is the premise or the third statement that would make that true, that I am presuming you will just accept, and that's an enthymine. That's an, uh, or in other words, an assumption we make to connect a claim and a reason. Now, sometimes assumptions need to be defended, and you may have to support your assumption. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But that's what we mean by an enthymeme. It's a suppressed premise. It's when you don't outright state an assumption because you assume it's going to be naturally accepted. For each separate enthymeme, so each reason, each assumption that it backs up or connects your claim and your reason. For each separate enthymeme in your thesis, identify the implicit warrant, so draw out what is the giving that assumption its power, and determine whether it represents an assumption that your audience shares with you. If so, there's no need to address the warrant explicitly in your argument. If the warrant represents an assumption some readers might resist, however, consider how you might persuade them to accept it. If you think it would be impossible to persuade your audience to accept the warrant, then you might consider changing the reason to produce a warrant that relies on an assumption that you and your readers share. Please note that each reason in your thesis will produce a different warrant, and you must assess the audience's response to each one. Now, one of the big, so let me, I want to break down a few terms here because there's a lot of discussion about enthymemes, assumptions, warrants. Those all are the same, there's different words for the same kind of idea. There is, you may have heard of this term before, an inference that connects a claim and a reason. Inference, enthymeme, assumption, warrant. These are all the same thing. The reason we give them different labels is because they are represented in different ways. But they basically mean, what is it that connects a claim and a reason? And sometimes that connection is accepted by everyone just kind of automatically, and sometimes it is not. So, let me give you one of my, one of my reasons for advocating that evangelical church leaders stop advocating against abortion. So one of the reasons is that it is against or it is not supported by theology or biblical instruction. And this is really important because the assumption there and this is really important for evangelical Christians, if the Bible and their own theological system doesn't support something, they really shouldn't be doing it necessarily, or they shouldn't be as devoted to it or as obsessed with it the way this culture seems to be dedicated to this particular issue. And part of my claim also is about advocating that they stop 
stop trying to make this matter illegal. Not necessarily that they should stop caring about this. In fact, part of my argument is that I really think it's important that they continue to argue for un the unborn the way they do. Just not in terms of trying to force this to be an illegal practice in the medical profession. And it does a lot of harm to the community. And one of the harms it does is that it forces people to act in ways that isn't really supported by their own theology and by and, and biblical instruction. And there's nothing, there are a few things that are as important to evangelical Christians than their theology, what they believe, and what the Bible tells them. Those two elements are very important for that community. In fact, they may be the most important things for the community. The whole community is built on or begins or exists because they believe something together, so their theology, and they do so because of what the Bible has told them about their beliefs. And so there's this interaction between those elements. Now, they won't have a problem accepting the assumption. So I'm not going to really explain that the way I explained it to you. They're already going to accept that. What they're going to want to know is, give me the evidence that shows it's not part of our theology, not part of the Bible. And so I'm going to kind of walk through that stage or that kind of uh, reasoning. So I'm not really going to defend that assumption. In fact, I'm just going to lay it out there. I'm not even going to say anything about it because they automatically accept that. I know that community. And one of the things I may put in my presentation is my this assumption here is accepted by my community. I know it. I'm not even going to bother with it. I've researched it enough. I've been, I'm a part of the community. I've belonged to it for most of my life and have a lot of roots there. And at least, even though I may not believe everything they do, I certainly have ethnic roots in that community. And so there's that. But there are other kinds of claims and reasons that may not have a clear a connection there. Now, you're going to have to make a decision. Do I know this community well enough so that I can't know when I need to defend an assumption? Or do I know this community well enough to think, well, maybe this assumption is something we're never going to get past, so I shouldn't even deal with it in terms of you know, trying to make this part of my argument. I mean, you're going to have to be careful with that. It's something I, you know, I've kind of struggled with a lot, too. At what point am I pushing some boundaries here? Because we're dealing with faith and belief, and sometimes those things are, well, people just aren't willing to budge on them. And I don't blame them because it's part of their whole being and identity. And so they don't want to completely transform who they are. So if that's the case, then that may be a reason and claim that I need, or a reason and assumption, I should say, that I need to kind of move past. Now, the reason we have all these different terms like enthymeme, inference, warrant, assumption, is because they play different roles in different circumstances. So like I said, the enthymeme is the same connection between a claim and a reason as an inference, but we use the term enthymeme when it's suppressed, when you don't actually say outright, this is my assumption. You just assume that they accept it. An assumption is just any kind of uh, connection between a claim and a reason. It doesn't necessarily have to be suppressed, but it's just the kind of what is making that connection possible. 
And when we use the term inference, that's just a technical term used in argumentative studies to refer to that connection. And then we use warrant. This is actually a really specific way of identifying that connection from a particular kind of, of argumentation organization that was developed really in the 20th century, mid 20th century by a scholar named Stephen Toolman. And there's a lot in your textbook about Stephen Toolman, T-O-U-L-M-I-N, that you can kind of look up what does a Toolman kind of argument structure look like. It emphasizes really kind of defending your assumptions or your connections between claim and reason as much as possible. And he uses the term warrant to identify those. And so that's become a technical term we use in that aspect. But all four of those refer to that connection between claim and reason. So that's why we use those terms. And I usually use them interchangeably, but sometimes I, I won't, and I'll make sure I identify the distinctions between those. Okay, so that's uh, enough for number four. Let's move on to number five now. For each of your reasons and any warrant that needs explicit support, provide sufficient evidence to convince your audience that your reasons are true statements. Your personal experiences, observations, and reasoning count as evidence, but you should also draw extensively on outside sources for evidence to support your reasons. So obviously, if I'm going to support that reason about the Bible and theology, there's a couple of things I'm going to have to do there. If I'm going to say theology and the theology and the Bible don't support these, I'm going to have to show, and this is a really difficult thing to do, how something doesn't exist or doesn't work. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to walk through a lot of arguments people have already made. Here's all the reasons they've given, theological, biblical reasons, and demonstrate how those are kind of wrenched and forced and actually not very their assumptions there are not very good. And in fact, if you really examine what the Bible says and what theology says, it doesn't advocate against abortion at all in any way. In fact, the Bible is pretty much silent on the topic, except for one area, except for one section of Leviticus, which is actually supportive of abortion in, in a weird kind of way. And uh, the other elements of the Bible that touch on it don't really refer to that particular issue. People just assume that it does or make it fit that way. And so that's kind of the argument I'm making there. And just giving the readers some relief on that particular issue. Look, you don't have to be so invested in this because this is not what your belief structure demands of you. So that's kind of how I'm working through it. But you're going to have to provide the evidence that makes that connection, whether you call it an enthymeme or assumption or inference, that makes that connection stronger and stronger the more you provide evidence. It makes that reason more and more believable. Okay, number six. Make sure you anticipate objections to your argument by planting a, at least one naysayer in your paper. Now, I'm going to have a lot of naysayers in my paper and some of my reasons are also going to be responses to naysayers. So, and in fact, most of my paper, a lot of my paper is going to be naysayers. So that's fine if that's the case. So you may have many naysayers. But if you're mainly just outlining your position on something, just make sure there is one section in your paper, a paragraph or two or three, however many it takes, where you say, here's, here's a, a good position that's uh, the, against what I have to say, and 
I'm going to show why I still have the better claim here or why they're wrong or whatever it may be. And, you know, there are a lot of different ways to approach naysayers. One of the things that I think is tricky with naysayers, especially in the way we communicate these days online and in these big argumentative arenas, is we don't often point out how our positions have really good points. You know, one of the things I, I make it, you know, one of the main elements of my writing, especially with this particular topic, is to point out how noble and thoughtful, and I would even say good, my opponent is for what they're advocating. I'm not against my opponent necessarily, and I don't think that they're evil or bad people. I do, however, think that they are causing problems that are much greater than the whatever solution they're trying to solve. So that's how I'm approaching that particular issue. Next, this naysayer might be hypothetical or might be the actual author of an outside source. To engage effectively with a naysayer, you should, one, name and describe the naysayer, represent objections fairly, make concessions when possible, and answer objections. Now, you really should make sure you do all four of those in that section. So even if you are addressing several naysayers throughout your paper, make sure at least for one of those naysayers, you tackle all four of those features. Now, every time I run into a naysayer, I'm going to make sure I do that just to cover my butt. But whatever you do there with in terms of how your paper works out, make sure you at least in for one naysayer are naming and describing them, representing their objections fairly, making concessions, and answering objections. Okay, number seven. The previous six steps will help you construct effective logos appeals, which really should be your primary focus. You should also make effective ethos appeals to come across to readers as a person of good character, good sense, and goodwill. To make effective ethos appeals, make sure you, and these should be familiar to you, Know what you're talking about. Obviously, after the semester research, you definitely should. Draw on all those outside sources you've been reading over the course of the semester and provide ample evidence for your reasons. Show regard for your readers. Try to come across as approachable and thoughtful, not arrogant or insensitive. There's a, that was a really tough one for me. I'm prone to narcissism, so that's a problem. But I also, um, it, for this particular topic can get passionate about it. And this can be something you run into and think that you're so right that the fools who don't accept what you have to say are just ridiculous. But that's not the case. And it actually has taken an entire semester for me to really come to terms with how I'm thinking more about my that this community and the roots that I have with them and reflecting back on that. Uh, but also make sure you are careful and meticulous in your writing, not sloppy or disorganized. Number eight, finally, make pathos appeals to readers by connecting with their emotions, values, and imaginations. To make effective ethos or pathos appeals, make sure you choose an appropriate style based on the conventions of your publication venue. Really important. I am really prone to using a lot of humor and sarcasm in my writing, and I had to completely eliminate that as best as possible. There are a few features here and there, but... When I do use any kind of humor, sarcasm, 
I really draw on the old kind of preacher joke from the pulpit kind of humor. I can't use a lot of vulgarities and profanities in this paper because that's that audience will almost immediately stop listening to me. So I have to be careful with that. But you should also, for pathos, evoke emotion, sympathy, outrage, anger, delight, awe, horror, and so on in readers that make your paper more moving. So the dominant emotions that you want to use to appeal to your reader, you should certainly be doing those. Evoke sensations, seeing, hearing, touching, tasting, smelling in your audience that make your writing vivid and help your readers experience things imaginatively. Something I really had to do with this paper is one of the things you'll, you probably have noticed with especially uh, this particular anti-abortion kind of uh, movement within evangelical Christians is they like to use a lot of imagery and sensations. And so I had to I kind of take those and, and uh, commandeer them in a sense and use them for my own purposes in a, in a different kind of way. So still evoking those sensations that they feel. I mean, the, the, especially the images of fetuses and stuff, those are really powerful images that this community uses when they're making their case. And, and I kind of take a lot of that feeling that they have and reshape it as best I can with my words to another purpose. You should also appeal to values, freedom, justice, tolerance, fairness, equality, and so on that your readers and you share. So this is something that I can draw on a lot because, I, like I've mentioned before, I have this ethnic background with this community, and I still consider myself ethnically involved in this community or a part of this community, and so that's something that I can really draw on pretty easily. In fact, I reference that a lot back and forth, some of the shared values. Now, the arrangement for this paper, as we'll see in the next section, and let's go ahead and look at that. Of course, I'm not going to I'm not going to remind you of what uh, arrangement is. You should be familiar with that. So the second paragraph there says, To begin your paper, follow the advice offered in Chapter 1 of They Say, I Say. To give your writing the most important thing of all, namely, a point. A writer needs to indicate clearly not only what his or her thesis is, but also what larger conversation the thesis is responding to. In this case, the conversation you're responding to is the one surrounding your issues. Indicate at the beginning of your paper that you're writing in response to that conversation. Then state a thesis that consists of your claim and supporting reasons. Also mind the lessons of chapter 7 and They Say, I Say. Regardless of how interesting a topic may be to you as a writer, readers always need to know what is at stake in a text and why they should care. Rather than assume that audiences will know why their claims matter, all writers need to answer the so what and who cares questions up front. Don't assume that your readers will care about your take on the issue. Make them care by explaining why your argument is significant. Feel free to use the templates of Chapter 7 of They Say, I Say. After you've completed these introductory moves, the arrangement of your argument is up to you. You should include material from each step in the invention stage, but your selection and organization of that material should follow your own judgment as to what will prove most effective with the audience you have selected. This was a really big one for me because I have to especially make a case that my audience should care about what I'm about to say. Because one thing I definitely know about this community more than almost anything else is that they will not even pick up a book 
that they feel like is antagonistic toward their faith or their belief structure. In fact, I've had this conversation a lot. This is probably one of the most tricky things about the paper I'm writing is to convince people to even continue on, to even care about having this conversation. Mainly because if you're writing to someone who is dedicated to something based on a faith that they have, well, providing evidence may not matter really to this community. And so it's something you really have to dig into in a unique kind of way. And so I really have to spend a lot of effort. In fact, I spend almost a paragraph's worth of time expressing that so what and who cares part of this paper. One of the things that the ed- one of the junior editors had mentioned to me is they said, we may need an entire series just on that part if we ever did decide to publish something that you were writing in this vein. And they said the likelihood that they would is very slim, but they said that it's slim largely because we may not actually even want to read this just out of personal preference. It's an interesting conversation. So something I really had to tackle. Okay. Finally, or next in style, in rhetorical studies, remember, of course, style is your appropriate language for your occasion. We've talked about this already, so I'm just going to kind of read through this and make a really brief comment on this. One person of Eng- purpose of English 1302 is to give you practice writing a variety of styles. For this paper, you should familiarize yourself with the style of pieces published in the venue you have selected or, you know, for whatever individual or organization you're sending this to. Adhere to that style as closely as possible. Now, you may reach a point at which you just don't know what the answer is. An editor doesn't have an answer. You don't have an answer. The guidelines don't have an answer. So you're going to have to make your best guess and do what you feel like will be most effective as a writer. That's fine. I'm actually not, as a grader, going to carefully analyze exactly how deeply you are stylistically arranging every single word to match this audience. But if you as a writer are proud of some of the expressions you've made because it really will match the audience well, make sure you make a note of that maybe in the margin or in a comment in the actual document when I'm grading your paper. That will help me grade your paper better. You'll make a better grade, obviously, because of like, wow, you've really put a lot of effort into that. But that's something we don't always think about um, when we're writing or especially when we're grading because we can't always. You know, if I'm part ethnically part of a group and I can communicate with them very fluidly without many hiccups, it may seem impressive to some an outsider, but the reality is I have done a lot of work in just living and understanding this community. One of the things that you may need to do as a writer is, or that you have done as a writer, is almost become part of that community. Maybe you are, are, are part of that community. You kind of know how to talk to them. You're part of that discourse community, in other words. And if you remember your discourse community paper, it's all about analyzing how your language interacts with a particular community in various uh, ways that appeal to them. Well, that's kind of what you're doing when you're thinking about writing. You're joining the discourse community of your audience. And so whether you join the audience, that audience by birth or by research or by some other means, you will have to join it in some way to stylistically come across effectively to your 
reader. So, you know, for instance, one of the things I've already mentioned is how I'm going to kind of modify my humor as a writer for this community. Now, I would certainly point that out to my professor and say, uh, I normally would say this in this very vulgar and profane way, but I'm changing it to this for this audience because it makes sense. Let me give you a quick example. One of my grandfathers is an old preacher. And uh, when I say old, he's still preaching, even though he's in, in his 80s. And uh, he will, to his dying day, I'm sure, continue preaching. And he's very proud of the fact that he is a preacher. He has this joke he will tell. <laughs> and it's about these two hens that are looking for, uh, you know, a boyfriend. And he has a clean version of the joke and a dirty version of the joke. And so he tells the dirty version when he's around people who aren't, like, really super as Christian-y and... and pious as he he is or his church is you know the congregants are and the punchline of the joke is the the hens in the chicken coop say well any doodle do okay so any dude will do because i got a pun there on dude but the dirty version of the joke says any cockle do okay so they're trying to Im- it, they're trying to imitate the sound of the rooster cockadoodle do um, and, uh, you know, doodle do or cockle doodle do, you know, both of those kind of fit the, the joke well. So the clean version and the dirty version is kind of what he does. So I'm kind of actually doing that. And, and I know that, but look at how much I have to be immersed in this community to really know how that joke would work and how that kind of humor works. I'm not asking you to do that much or be that immersed into a community, but you do have to have some of that kind of playing a role in the way you work through your material stylistically. Of course, cite your material, cite all your sources according to the conventions of your publication venue. If you're writing a letter or an article for a mainstream periodical, then you will probably just introduce your sources and cite them within the text as much as you you did for your mapping the issue paper. If you're writing for a web-based publication, you might need to include hyperlinks. If you're writing for a scholarly journal, then you'll need to use the formal citation system. That journal requires proofread carefully, avoid errors in grammar, spelling, punctuation, and mechanics, and of course, visit OWL Purdue website uh, for more information on negotiating those elements. And then, of course, your other requirements for this paper should be five to ten pages. This is the one paper I'm not really obsessed with you going over a little bit. Or um, I, I want to say I'm not obsessed with you going under. Fewer than five pages for this research project seems impossible, but I'm not opposed to a good paper existing that is under five pages. I just have never really seen one, okay? that And that the five pages really is because it just really helps you develop your position. Um, if you're providing all of this evidence, you have these reasons, you have all this really great evidence, you're going to end up with five or more pages. I mean, it's just the way it is. But if you end up with 12 pages, I will not penalize you or care uh, because this particular publication or this particular paper, it's just up in the air how long it really needs to be. Now, once you start getting beyond, you know, 12 pages, 15 or 20, uh, we we may run into a problem. So if that is something you're you're really struggling with, I know some of you will, because I know some of you and how you're writing. Uh, just be sure you'll let me know. Give me a heads up so I can plan for that 
reading that and making sure I get give it enough time to give it a good read for your final grade there. Okay, I don't want any fluff, so construct a thesis that require at least five pages to support. I also don't want to read a dissertation. Okay, so we've kind of gone over all that. You need to make sure that your paper, and this is important just for the formatting element of it. I know some of your papers will uh, require something different, but just for the sake of submitting this, even if your publication venue says, hey, write an aerial 11-point font, for this particular essay that you will submit to me, use Times New Roman 12-point font, one-inch margins all the way around, and double-space it all. Okay. Now, your first submission, of course, as you know, is due on Monday. So that is coming up soon. And like I said, that first submission, try to write it out as best as you can. But if you get to sections where you just don't have it worked out yet, that's fine. Just kind of give a sense of what you want to do in that section. Maybe a few sentences that you've already sketched out or some attempted sentences. I'm not really concerned with you writing a completely perfect finished section or paper. Uh, like I said, an outline is fine for this first submission as long as there's some sense of some direction you're going and how you're piecing things together. That's fine. Okay. Now we'll talk more about grading criteria and everything later, but that's the assignment. So right now you kind of have a sense of how we're going to wrap up the semester, the next few stages. You now have some assignments you need to be working on, your RPP presentation, as well as your first draft. The next week, we'll do the peer review. And then the week after that, you'll be done with this class. I'll have no other requirements for you except that you just get that final submission turned in. So we'll be all wrapped up. And so that's it. You are uh, working now on the very final part of the semester for this class. You're almost done. You have fewer weeks left than you do um, than you uh, ever have, and we're almost at the end. In fact, you have less than a month now um, left in this semester. So let's finish up strong. I've really appreciated all of you. One last note I'll kind of leave you with as you are thinking about all of these things you have to do. I know it's a lot, and I know that you have other classes, and so that's why I try to stay out of your hair as much as possible. Even if it wasn't kind of a tricky semester, I would try to do that because I realize that you're doing a lot, and I was a student once as well and still try to take classes from time to time. There's a lot to do. So... Just try to work on these. Keep in mind that I have every confidence in you. And if there is a problem, just let me know and we'll work through it. If it's a time constraint problem, more than happy to work through that. Hope you understand that by now. And I hope that I can be as approachable as possible as we move forward. There's a light at the end of the tunnel for both the, this class, for the semester, uh, you know, I have to tell myself that as well because it's been a struggle this semester, but we are almost there. So thank you for your hard work. Keep it up. And one uh, other thing to keep in mind is that um, I know many of you in this class because I've had you before as students, so I know that you can finish up the semester strong. 
I always tell everyone I encounter who asks about students in college these days, because I've been teaching for almost 20 years now, they say, what are the kids like? And usually they put it in the form of, how dumb are these college students these days? And many years ago, I made a pledge to myself that I would never complain to anyone outside of my classroom about my students. And so that usually means I never complain to anyone because I'm not going to complain to other students about other students. And the reason I don't is because for every student that makes a mistake or just, you know, hates me or whatever, hates school and just, you know, whatever, for whatever reason, there is every other student out there who really is trying to get this work done and wants to do good things in the world. Even if it's make a bunch of money, uh, most of you are dedicated to really noble causes. And that's why I want to be here alongside you on this journey. This is one step. This is just one element. And I have a, I hope I have a pretty good perspective on that as far as you being concerned. And so that means I want you to be successful and I want you to get this done and I want you to have a really good grade at the end of the semester. So wrap it up strongly the way I know that you can. Thank you.